Welcome to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. Martin Luther King Jr. Day is a federal holiday in our country, celebrated annually on the third Monday of January to honor the life and achievements of Martin Luther King Jr., one of America's great leaders in the civil rights movement. Tomorrow at the University of Jamestown, Dr. Jeremy Holloway will speak on campus at 7 p.m. and in just a minute, we'll visit with Dr. Holloway prior to his speech in Jamestown as part of events honoring the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Innocence, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Jeremy Holloway. He's an assistant professor and director of geriatrics education at the University of North Dakota. Dr. Holloway, welcome to Main Street. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You are going to give a talk titled Legacy of Freedom. What's in that title? There's a lot there. One is really honoring the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And really what that is, is a, some people call it a struggle for freedom. And it would be true. There's a struggle for anything valuable. And so Dr. Martin Luther King really embodied that struggle for freedom. Um, it could be racial justice, but there's civil justice, of course, as well. What do students think about today, do you think, when they think about Martin Luther King Day? Is it on top of mind or is it a holiday? Some students see it as a day off, a day to catch up with school and everything. And then there's students that really take advantage of events where they can be in an environment that reflects on what this is, what this day is about. And that's what you need. You need to, I need to get into an environment where I'm reminded, because even as I go throughout my day, it's easy to forget about things that have been before me that I take advantage of in a good way now. Help us reflect on the journey of what's happened since Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968 to where we are today. Yes, I actually uh, visited the, and I encourage anyone to visit the area and the place where Dr. King was assassinated. Um, that was very inspirational for me, and it means a lot. There's a lot that has happened since then, and I think we've hit some milestones, but since the pandemic, there's some things that have surfaced that really call us all out to, re to, to challenge how, what do we see when we see people that we may think are different from us? And how are we taking intentional approaches to uh, not widen that gap and provide more connection on a human level? I sat on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial where he gave his speech. It's well marked, anyone can see it. And I couldn't move for a little while. 
you're going to visit with students tomorrow night in Jamestown who maybe haven't reflected much on the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. What should they think about him? Wow. I want them to think about, because I know, and I usually leverage the way human beings are. Human beings think about themselves uh, often, and it's not oftentimes selfish. They, they're thinking about themselves maybe to make sure they're the best person they can be. And I know that the students are doing that regardless of what day it is. And so what I want to do is help them value what, how they think about themselves and how they make a difference today in their environments and how Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did that. I have a real experience of my own, which I'm going to share, that's going to hopefully help them understand how I went through that process myself. Give me a sense of when Dr. King became important to you. Yeah, without sharing everything about what I'm gonna share uh, tomorrow, one of the things is I realized that life isn't just about me, that I'm actually standing on legacies that others went through for me. So many things, you know, we're sitting on a chair. Someone <laughs> had to go through a process so that we could have these nice chairs that we're sitting on. We're using technologies. Someone just created a beautiful legacy for their family so that we could use those products. And Dr. Martin Luther King, he, he really, his whole life was dedicated and even, you know, uh, he gave his life t for this purpose of sending a message of how important social justice is. It's really a gateway to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for us all. How important is he in today's political climate? So important. Why? He is, so we all have this, what I call a still small voice inside. It could be our, you could call it a conscience. I call it also the voice of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we have a lot of external environments that can try to stifen that voice. Every human being has that voice inside of them. Every human being has a level to which they're listening to that voice inside of them. And I want that voice to be crystal clear for every human being and loud. And we want to, we want to have leaders in our over office, in all of our offices who understand that and to help people have that sense of, of value more and more because our, the environments that we're in could either stifle that voice or it could help really germinate and bring that voice to, to light and what it actually needs to be in people's lives. Do you think Dr. King's legacy is any less important in North Dakota or more important in North Dakota than it is in other places in the country? You know, and I wish I could speak on behalf of a lot of people that come here to North Dakota. I have my own lived experience, and I've said that I came to North Dakota to stay warm because the people here, their hearts are so warm. Maybe it's because we've all gone through this crazy winter, and when, when, it, when it hits the summer, because, you know, we know there's no spring here, mm -hmm. <laughs> but when it hits the summer, we're all, you know, we said we've gone through this together. And I, but I do feel like 
there are all kinds of people in North Dakota, right? And yes, here in North Dakota, we must celebrate even more the, um, these values that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. brought to light related to social justice really for all, social justice for all, and uh, an appreciation of different cultures. Through your lens, how has the observance of Martin Luther King Day evolved since when you first remember it to today? Yeah, I, I know I look like I'm 15 years old, but I'm actually a little older. And so I remember when, yeah, it was a day and, you know, you would see something on television and, and I would see, I would always see the speech. I would always see Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech. It would show up on television before there was the internet and everything. And, and I remember us gathering around and listening and seeing, and it just, it hit me every single time. And I still put on YouTube and, and watch Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech. I encourage people to do that. I think today, I believe there are at least where I'm from, which is Toledo, Ohio, I remember the University of Toledo would have these big events where people would come and gather. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, I don't see that as much. We had our first diversity, equity, and inclusion conference just a year ago. And that was the first DEI conference in North Dakota. And actually, I think there should be more uh, uh, kind of celebrated about that because that was the first one last year. Last year is just, uh, you know, just the beginning of, of uh, something new, I think, for North Dakota. So, yeah, I think there is room for more widely celebrated opportunities in North Dakota, for sure. There are some politicians today in some states, and North Dakota, I believe, is one of them, who believe there should be less emphasis on things like departments of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what would your message be to those folks? My message is they're absolutely right be, uh, be in this aspect, that diversity, equity, inclusion, unfortunately, has been hijacked in a lot of ways where there's individuals, leaders, et cetera, just using the platform to promote a certain group more than another group, which is the antithesis of what uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is about. It's about all groups having a seat at a table, regardless of background. So that's the kind of diversity, equity, inclusion that should be strongly encouraged in every office, in every business, etc. And there needs to be a curriculum and a training in how to assure that pure sense of DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and, and belonging, DEIB, can be nurtured in the way that it's meant to be nurtured in our businesses and organizations. You're the Director of Geriatrics Education at the University of North Dakota. Yet you will also interact obviously with college students. Is there an inter intergenerational difference in how Dr. King's perceived that you have noticed? That's a great question. You know, I, it's, a, it's a question actually that I haven't directly asked students, I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't directly asked them hey, what do you think about Dr. Martin Luther King? I will say that it's almost, it's almost a given for a lot of younger students, and I can't speak for all of them, but on campus, it's almost a given that they've had some experience where they know this is a value. 
Like this is something that we need to appreciate. We need to appreciate the differences of others, um, especially when it comes to race and especially when it comes to, I think, black versus white, because we've had so many forerunners talking about that and, and challenging you know, beliefs and in, in, in all these, you know, racial, <laughs> challenging racism. But there's other isms that actually need to be challenged, like ageism. You know, that one actually today needs to be strongly challenged. Uh, you know, when you look on TikTok and other, you know, areas, um, people talk about old age as though that category is a category that if you're young, you should completely ignore these people <laughs> because they don't know anything and they don't know what they're talking about. And TikTok and other social media kind of even have, puts, a, uh, puts a horn on that, you know, just you, it's, it's not good. And so I think that that's something that should be challenged. We're enjoying our conversation with Dr. Jeremy Holloway. He's going to speak at the University of Jamestown tomorrow night at seven o'clock on the university campus. His topic, appropriate for Martin Luther King Day, Legacy of Freedom. Dr. Holloway, how do students learn about social justice movements today? There are some big headline events that have happened recently that the whole country has heard about. Then it's spun one way by people that provide people information, whether it's from, from TikTok or from the national news. How are people learning about what social justice means? There's an issue happening today and the issue is the same as the age-old issue of, I'm going to say it in a phrase, you know, I'm a father. There was no manual for becoming a father when I became one. There was no manual for becoming, uh, for being married. <laughs> I wish there was. There is no manual for navigating through social media. There is no manual, there are some courses and maybe some education about dealing with loneliness. And there is no manual about navigating through uh, narcissism either. I am, uh, I'm going to say this because it's very important that there's a relationship between loneliness, well, with college students and, you know, folks in, in their middle age with uh, loneliness, uh, narcissism, and uh, social media. And so these three things play against each other a lot these days since the pandemic. So in just recent years, the U.S. Surgeon General announced loneliness as an epidemic. Unfortunately, people are getting their information uh, only through uh, social media. I love social media, but there has to be some kind of way to train folks to understand that that's not the only source that one should get because when folks are lonely, so I, I focus my research on so social isolation and loneliness of older adults, but I also have an intergenerational program. So I also study about intergenerational relationships. And what I see with uh, folks that are younger than 65 is when they're lonely, they want to have some kind of resource or a source to validate what they're going through in their life and they go to social media. Unfortunately, social media has an algorithm. So algorithms only validate your opinions and point of views. So when you only see something that validates your opinion and point of view, it can only exasperate feelings of and thoughts of that are just narcissistic. You know, it's just like, well, my opinion and point of view is the only one that matters. And so when you talk with someone that's different from you, 
has a different point of view, you're less inclined to listen to or tolerate or accept someone else's point of view because you already have this audience, which is yourself and social media, that says otherwise. And that gap is getting wider and wider. There has to be trainings, and there's not a lot of trainings. I intend to make some about how to navigate through all that, especially when you're facing us situations that might cause you to feel lonely and isolated. Forgive me if this is too personal, but help me understand how racism has impacted you in your life as a black person. Yeah, I, under, I had to understand what racism was because for me, as a younger person, you're going through life and you can take things as just normal. Like, this is just normal. And one of the things that I <laughs> took for normal that I don't anymore is when my voice is stifled. It, when I have an opinion or point of view, and sometimes I, like other human beings, I put together different things and I say, you know what? That doesn't make sense. And this is why. And I used to think that my thoughts or opinions, point of views were not validated because I was this black kid from Ohio. So maybe my voice doesn't really matter. And when you're, when you're in a majority that's different, of a different background than you, and I have learned that it's not just white, it may be everybody else here, here is taller than me. That's in North Dakota. Uh, I'm with you there, by the way. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, and you know, I always say that uh, lions never had to be taller than giraffes, so it's okay, I'd rather be a lion. But anyway, um, I had to figure out that my opinion is okay, and my point of view is okay, just because I'm a part of this race called the human race. That's my primary identity. These other things, black, you know, uh, male, all these different things, those, that's my secondary identity. And I think the biggest problem in our whole world, but in the United States, is that we often overlook and kind of dismiss that primary identity like it's not even there. And we, we more put on a pedestal our secondary identities and forget about these primary ones. I remember that I have a primary identity that connects me with you way stronger than any of the other ones, even though those other ones are important, but they're, they're not when we forget about the first one. You shared with us earlier that you're a father. Yes. Is our country in a better place today relative to these issues of race that were so concerning to Dr. King than it was when you were a young child? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a father, I think about this every single day. I think about the world that my kids are being brought up in right now. And it, it scares me in a good way. Like it, it makes me alert every What's, day. What scares you? What scares me is uh, if I don't help give my kids a perspective, that's what scares me. So thankfully I've been given a precious gift called 18 to 21 years, maybe, of giving my, and this is the most precious gift. Our kids are born loving and honoring us. Like really, I, that's a gift, right? They love us just because we're parents, right? That's an opportunity. That one, it, it gives me proper respect. I call it fear sometimes, but a proper respect to give them this perspective that I hope is grounded and helps them when they're out there in the world. 
right? Because they're always going to look at everything through the lens of how they were raised and brought up. And you know what? It actually doesn't even matter how crazy the world is out there if I take advantage of these 18 and to 21 years and my parents did that for me. So, and I'm gonna share about that in, uh, in the event tomorrow. They took, they did it. And I'm so grateful that they, every day that goes by actually, I realize how amazing they actually, what they actually did. And my dad was kind of brought up in an environment where his dad wasn't the ideal dad for him. So, you know, I, if someone could say, ah, oh, Jeremy, you grew up with these two parents and they never divorced, they were always together and they're still together today. That's just, no, but my dad, I remember my dad's story though. And my dad didn't have that. And so I have both, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, and I think about both. And I understand that if you didn't have that, you could still have it, choose to have it and have it for your children, no matter what's, how crazy it is out there. As we conclude our conversation, what would you tell me is the most least understood legacy that Dr. King gives to us? The most least understood legacy is the legacy uh, for humanity and the legacy that you have a right to listen to that small voice inside of you. Every human being has the right to our forefathers in the United States called it life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that could be also summed up in that small voice inside of you. You have a right to listen to that voice. And every human being is born with that right. And I want every single person to remember that for the rest of their life. That is their legacy that they can pass down to their children. Dr. Jeremy Holloway, he's an assistant professor and director of geriatrics education at the University of North Dakota. He'll be speaking in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Week tomorrow at the University of Jamestown. That'll be at seven o'clock. Dr. Holloway, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Craig. Thanks for joining us on Main Street. I appreciate it. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, 
Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Lots of listeners have complimented Ashley Thornburg's interviewing skills over the years, and so have plenty of her guests. Hi, my name is Bonnie Sommerfeld. I'm from Fargo, North Dakota, originally Valley City, North Dakota. I love all things Main Street. I'm a total fan. And when I come in to be interviewed by Ashley, it's so wonderful. I'm asked questions that are poignant, and I learn things about myself by answering the questions that I did not even know I had or that existed. So I just always look forward to it, and I hope everybody else does too. If you appreciate thoughtful questions and hosts that take the time to listen, then step up and support Main Street and all the things you enjoy on Prairie Public with the gift of financial support. Just go to prairiepublic.org and open the red link that says Donate. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. And what does the word hope mean to you? And how often do you feel hopeful? And how often do you think about hope in terms of where you live and the people you interact with? Those are the types of questions that Strengthen ND and the Human Flourishing Lab are addressing in a project about spreading hope. You can find out more at strengthenND.com slash spreading-hope. And we visit now with Megan Langley. She is the executive director of StrengthenND. Megan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. The questions on this postcard, how hopeful are you about the future of your community and how hopeful are you about the future of North Dakota? So I want to start with that word hope. (laughs) Um, What does a word like hope mean to you and why did you want to gauge hope in the state? Well, hope really came through the design process that we engaged in when we were named as a Bush Foundation community-based grant-making partner. We had pulled in folks from all across the state to say, you know, we have basically a, um, a multi-million dollar opportunity to potentially change um, North Dakota or to, to make it better for everybody over the next few years. And we were kind of going around the table saying, okay, we're going to have an application process like this, and we're really looking for that. And at the very end, we were asking um, folks from across the state, what what would you like to have different, or what what's different because Strength and ND mm. is able to steward forward this money? And one of our design committee members, who's a member of our board, he was a little frustrated <laughs> with me and my facilitator tactics, and he said, Megan, these communities just need hope. They need hope that they can access these dollars. They need hope that they can actually make something happen in their community. And that small comment has just trickled into this bigger initiative about thinking about hope and and the science of hope and hope theory in that it, it explains so much about communities and, and which community, I think, which communities are, are thriving and, and how individuals are thriving. 
It's always so fascinating to me, the design process of when there is so much delicate care and thought and discussion and then exasperation and how yeah. that can lead to inspiration. Uh, so congratulations for not uh, just getting uh, annoyed at a comment made in exasperation and instead learning and growing from that. You just used an interesting phrase, hope theory. What yeah. is that? So we were lucky enough to be linked with Dr. Clay Rutledge from the Archbridge Institute's Human Flourishing Lab. And he talked a little bit before, as we were trying to understand, there's this nugget of, of hope and how do we seed or spread hope across the state through strategic investment. And he said, okay, first things first, we got to do the science thing. We have to understand <laughs> that the, like the science. <laughs> yeah. We have to understand the existing literature and the existing science behind hope. So uh, we were able to partner um, with a, with a researcher and he basically brought forward two ways that hope is really operationalized and it's in pathways thinking and agency thinking so people express hope um, when they when they see a path forward when they see either an example of a person or a community or they say you know i want to to be this this kind of job or this this have this type of feature and i know what i need to do to get there i need to do a b c or d that's mm -hmm. one component of having having hope the second component is the self-agency piece, which means that I have the confidence. I might not have the skills or ability right now, but I know how I can how I can get that those um, those skills or those abilities. And lastly, having the ability to persist when you're knocked off that pathway or when things aren't mm -hmm. going right. So we're trying to understand from North Dakotans what exactly hope theory looks like in practice in North Dakota. And and what are you hearing so far, realizing that um, part of this is to get a sense of what people want to talk about? Yeah, yeah. So what we're seeing so far, I think, is that people are very intrigued with this idea. And, you know, talking to other community development practitioners out there, we've all been trying to understand, you know, why community A is, is thriving and not community B when they have very similar proximities to resources, you know, very sim similar population size and opportunity. Like, wh why is A doing so much better than, than community B? And it feels like or it seems like that hopefulness piece, specifically that agency piece of, of being able to persist even when things go awry, um, might be that, that missing piece that maybe we can cultivate more of. Um, so we've got, you know, 2,000 postcards that we are going to be distributing across the state. And we put out just a very informal preliminary call saying, hey, would you be willing to distribute um, a bundle of postcards? We're giving them out in bu bundles of 25. And we thought, okay, we'll just get, get a little bit ahead of this thing before we, before we push it out <laughs> widely. And in five days, we have more people that want to hand out that postcard than wow. we have postcards. <laughs> so what does that tell you about the state of hope in North Dakota? I think that it's, that it's there. I mean, we've all been through a lot in the last couple of years. And I don't think that there's a population of people 
that express hope more than North Dakotans do. I mean, you look at being a farmer, the biggest expression of hope you have is that you're planting seeds for your crop that you don't know what it's going to look like when you go to harvest it or if you'll be able to harvest it. So I'm very excited to see what might happen as a result of this learning opportunity. We are visiting today with Megan Langley. She is the executive director of Strengthen ND, partnering with the Human Flourishing Lab for a project studying hope in North Dakota. And they're looking for distribution partners for these postcards. And so let's focus in just a little bit on, on what does it mean to be a good distribution partner and how can people get the postcards to distribute? To be a good distribution partner, what we're asking you to do is to commit to handing out either to friends, neighbors, or folks that that you work with and see on a daily basis, a self-addressed stamped postcard that basically has um, three questions. So there's there's two questions on the front that say, you know, tell us how hopeful you are about the future of your community, and then tell us how hopeful you are about the future of North Dakota. And then on the back, we're asking you to write in 15 words or less, what makes you hopeful? Because what we're really trying to do is understand how we can how we can grow, how we can cultivate, how we can really spread more hope across the state. So that's all they have to do. They can get a hold of me at Megan at strengthenND.com, and we will send you a packet of postcards. And also, if you're if handing out postcards individually isn't your thing, we do have um, the postcard available digitally. So if you go to strengthenND.com slash spreading dash hope, you can fill out that basically the questions that are on the postcard online. And if you'd be willing to share that with friends, neighbors, colleagues, so they could fill it, fill it out right online and kind of bypass the, the postcard piece, we would absolutely love to see that as well. The question there, how hopeful are you about the future of your community? What do you want people to be thinking about specific to the word community? You can be a farmer, but also a yogi and also a mother and also a hunter. Which community do they answer for or or multiples here? Yeah. It's really the community that you feel like you're a part of. So whether it is a yoga community, whether it is, I, I live in a rural area, so I kind of count Suris, West Hope, Botno, Newburgh as a part of my community. That's, that's my community. So it's really up to what the individual um, feels akin to. What we're really just trying to, to drill down is, do you feel like be, you have the ability to help things to get better? Do you feel like others want things to get to get better? And what's giving you that that good feeling, that hopefulness? Hmm. That can be a really interesting line to get better because different people have different ideas of what improving a community might look like. Mm-hmm. Do you anticipate or or how do you think that you would walk through if you have two vastly different ideas, seemingly mutually exclusive here. One person says, I want prayer in school to better the community. One person says, Mm -hmm. I want freedom of religion to better the community. Mm -hmm. What's your approach for for squaring those? Or do you need to? I, I don't think we need to, because 
everybody's going to have a different perspective. Everybody's going to have a different ideology. What we're asking people to, to think about is, what do you think would make the community better for everyone? And mm -hmm. I think that that's the key phrase, is, is what will make the community better for everyone. And at times there can be this you know, misnomer, and, and we work specifically with, with rural and remote communities where um, when we say, well, what might make your community better, there might be thoughts of thoughts or automatic assumptions of what can get more people here, where like population mm. is kind of that, that, that um, marker of success. But really it isn't because there are some communities where success looks like growth and that's wonderful. And there are other communities where success looks like maintaining what they have. You know, so we really want people to exercise what they believe or or um, define success to, to what they believe is is achievable and from their perspective would be better better for all, would uplift all in their community. As you have been going through this process in partnership with the Bush Foundation, uh, which tends to, well, their philosophy is to invest in great ideas and the people who power them, and the the process that you have to go through can be sort of... <laughs> Nebulous. I, I, th I think of it a little like stabbing a cloud when you have this idea uh, of, of hope and, oh, I kind of want to gauge what that is. And, and, and it can be really hard to take shape. <laughs> yeah. What have been some of the key things you have learned about yourself or even just how you think and approach other people in going through a process like that? You know, I think specifically for this project, when we went through and did the literature review and, and science back, science kind of research background around what is hope theory, what is the science of hope, and for me, this whole project boils down to that pathways thinking and agency thinking. So when I think about the future of strength in ND, and our charge is really to support and accelerate community and economic development all across our state to help communities ensure that not only can they be livable, but they're they're viable. And when there are those different definitions of success and and when there are when there are those different perspectives about the right way to get to that position of success, I think there's a couple of things that we can really take away from this, meaning like when we're trying to support more pathways thinking or or help people to see see that pathway, we need to make sure that when we receive the postcards, what people define or view as a pathway or what types of examples they want to see, you know, things like that. And especially around the agency piece of how do we learn and understand what's making people hopeful and how do you build that into some of these more traditional community and economic development practices or leadership practices. I mean, I think we've all been a part of leadership programs that are maybe very structured and you need to know this about state government, this about city government, and these. this is like, quote unquote, the, the way that you interact with people. But I wonder if, if especially in these areas that are that are under-resourced or, or otherwise underserved, yeah. we don't, we don't necessarily, <laughs> the, the resources and, and, and those things aren't there, but how do we illustrate for people that you have all, all that you need already to be a leader and you can lead through hope. You can lead by being hopeful and, and there, there are these tools that hopefully we can develop from this that will help people feel more comfortable in doing that. 
How do you make sure to get these postcards out to those underserved communities? The biggest thing that we've been um, trying to target or do is rely on the postcard distribution list that we had from um, the fall of 2020. So in the fall of 2020, when things were pretty rough across the state and, and we wanted to maybe cultivate some, some good news and, and um, instill maybe a little bit more, more pride in, in being a North Dakotan and, and, and living in, in North Dakota, we did a statewide art project where very similarly we asked people to distribute bundles of postcards that said in 15 words or less tell us what you view to be the importance of of being a rural north dakota or living in, in rural north dakota and from that experience we had about a 20 percent return rate and at that time we we um handed out 3,000 postcards instead of 2,000 um, but we had a, a number close to 600 responses and from that we were able to analyze those results and come back with what folks in rural North Dakota value which is home community opportunity land and and legacy so we've really been building on that organizationally but that distribution list provided us with that at least from the very least geographic representation of where the postcards went and we relied on that built it out and are really trying to get more folks within um, some of those under-resourced communities which thankfully through some early targeting we've been able to identify pretty quickly we're visiting today with Executive Director of Strengthen ND, Megan Langley. You can find out more at strengthenND.com. We're visiting about a project gauging hope in the state of North Dakota. It's a partnership with the Human Flourishing Lab, and I realize that you are a representative of Strengthen ND, but what is the Human Flourishing Lab? Sure. So the Human Flourishing Lab is a uh, department under the Archbridge Institute, which is a nonpartisan think tank. And it's my understanding that the Archbridge Institute, one of its cornerstone um, pieces or, or components is understanding the American dream. Is the American dream still still alive, still relevant for folks today? So they do quite a bit of research around economic mobility and around attitudes and perceptions um, that folks may have regarding current economic status. Um, and and um, other individuals or, or issues facing um, America right now. And with the Human Flourishing Lab led by Dr. Clay Rutledge, they are delving a little bit deeper into what are those, those things that make people tick. So he most recently published a book and an article about um, nostalgia and how powerful that can be and how we can harness nostalgia for good. Um, they just did a research study on um, social capital across the U.S. and and where's the best place to live for social capital. And I believe our project that we're doing with them around understanding hope in rural places kind of rounds out that portfolio of work with them. Where do you feel the most hope in North Dakota or for North Dakota? I feel the most hope when I'm out in communities visiting with them about what assets and, and even um, challenges that they have. I think we oftentimes get 
hung up on or or overwhelmed with all of the negative or challenges being reported about North Dakota instances where where people are aren't necessarily being nice to their friends and neighbors and I think being on the ground in so many communities we see the opposite of that so we were just doing an interim uh, grant report with the community of Cheyenne who is piloting a community-owned financing tool. Cheyenne's a very small, under-resourced community, um, 185 people. And they have been doing some work around um, housing. And they bought a home for $8,000. And they came together with mostly volunteer labor to um to flip that home and sell it so that a new family can come in and, and live there. And when Cher from our, our Strength and ND team was um, speaking with the project coordinator, she asked her the question of what what unintended consequences have you seen as a result of this, this effort or this investment? And she said, you know, we had people in our community who hadn't spoken for months or years and they came and they wanted to volunteer and and be a part of of the home that they were they were flipping and she said mm. you know they they came together i i didn't anticipate that they would start chatting or 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 start getting along but she said they were all working together on this home sooner rather than later they started talking and sooner that rather than later i was able to see those relationships be rebuilt so that example gives me so much hope in that it wasn't about flipping this house and and making a profit on it and getting new residents into the community. This community effort has really brought people back together who may have been fractured because of recent national narratives or community-based squabbles or, or whatever the, the situation might have been in that People can really put their community first. And when we put our community, the betterment of our community first, we can come together, heal together, work together in so many beautiful ways. Megan Langley, the executive director of Strengthen ND, about a project gauging hope across the state. You can find out more at strengthenND.com slash spreading dash hope or reach out to Megan directly at Megan at strengthenND.com to be a postcard distribution partner. Megan, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Dakota Datebook is next. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. North Dakota Native American Essential Understanding Number 7 is about Native identity. It states, Individual and communal identity is defined and supported by shared Native languages, kinship systems, teoshpae, clan structures, traditional teachings, values, sacred laws, and ceremonies. A continuum of tribal identity, unique to each individual, ranges from assimilated to traditional lifestyle. There is no generic American Indian. In this episode of Dakota Datebook, we'll listen to Dan Jerome, enrolled member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa in 
part one of the importance of knowing who you are. We have, I mean, in, in, the, in the community, you have uh, uh, a spectrum of uh, identity here. In other words, some of them are quarter, some of them are full blood. There's very few full blood now in the, in the community. Uh, probably a three quarter, but they're from that, from uh, those that they came, can claim that they're Indian descent from a quarter to three quarters. But uh, but even when I grew up, you know, you'd go to Rolla and I'd, I'd be with my, my dad sometimes walking the street. Nobody would greet him, no one, and uh, unless the businessman. You know, because he wanted business, of course. Or you'd go over there, over to Don Seath, and it was a little bit different, and you weren't considered a. You were, uh, there were more, there were more uh, people with Indian descent over there, more uh, Indian blood in them. So they didn't, they didn't claim you. You were somewhat in the middle, see. So you were, you were somewhat of two worlds go into the stores over at Rolla. My, for example, my mom was, uh, was uh, used to go shopping. And you always find somebody following you, one of the clerks following you up and down the, those stores because they were afraid she was going to take something. And I know she was accused of it one, one, one time. I'm Scott Simpson. If you'd like to learn more about the North Dakota Native American Essential Understandings and to listen to more Indigenous elder interviews, visit www.teachingsofourelders.org. Dakota Date Book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota. Funding for this series is from Humanities ND and the North Dakota Department of Public Instruction. That's it for this Monday edition of Main Street coming up tomorrow on the show. Minus 28 wind chill, 40 mile an hour wind. That sounds like a great time to go outside and make some art, right? Oh boy. We check in with Team North Dakota as they get ready to represent the United States during the upcoming World Snow Sculpting Championships. That's tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.